0: well here we go with another edition of radio friendly unit shifters jeff Sweatman, your host we talked to some folks i've known for many years in the industry and just get some insight into um, their lives and their careers and uh, where the industry is heading in the future so it's it's been a lot of fun to do this over the past year or so and we welcome in this week a very busy man so we really appreciate his time today Jack Barton of Jack Barton Entertainment how are you sir
1: Good how you doing Jeff
0: We are doing good and uh you know I tell people this is kind of like this is your life except it's not about my life it's about your life kind of when we go through the <laughs> sort of the history of
1: how boring where you've um, been
0: and uh no I just uh, I've been so fascinated by, by so many people I've in, encountered, you know, in all my years in radio, and and you were right at the top of my list. I wanted to make sure I, I talked to you, and um, well, you've you. got such a varied career, uh, so many different sides of the industry. So what got you into uh, the music business in the first place, would you
1: say? Um, in the first place, I was a little kid that loved music. And I remember at the ripe old age of seven and a half years old, um, being forced to watch Ed Sullivan than the first night the Beatles were on because I was seven and a half, I had a sister six years older than me, and she just had to see this, and we had one TV in the house. It was the 60s kids it wasn 't like today; lots of houses only had one TV, and so we only had one TV, so you know I would always want to watch the Wonderful world of Disney. But this night, we had to watch Ed Sullivan, and I'm being the pouty little brat sitting on the floor with my family, watching this, and about, oh, two lines into all my loving, I'm looking at this TV going, that that's fun. I want to do that for the rest of my life. And at that age, I didn't know if I'd play music. I'd always loved the radio. So I, I immediately knew like, oh, disc jockey, all, all that kind of stuff. And I just wanted to be in music and it remains, oh my God, almost 60 years later, still the biggest passion in my life outside of my family.
0: Yeah, that's pretty great when you can kind of make a, a career with, with something you love and and you've got your own business and you're kind of your own. Boss at this point, right? And uh, but you started in retail though. I'm fascinated about those retail years. I worked at Streetside Records. I was working nights at the radio station, but then I still needed a little extra money, so I'd work in the morning at a pretty great, kind of a regional chain. I guess it had a couple other stores in like Kansas City and St. Louis, but we were in Columbia, Missouri, you know, and had. They had a great business going there and a great manager. And I learned a ton just in the couple years I was there. So yeah,
1: that, that was the record side was fun. Um, what happened really was, is I was getting out of college and I'd been doing college radio and I'd had a couple near misses at jobs at really cool stations and markets close to home, but I didn't get those jobs. And at the ripe old age of 22 i wasn't smart enough to know that you're not supposed to get those jobs right out of the gate and it was as progressive rock radio was morphing into aor and the superstars format was just starting to form which was the concept of why play all these records nobody heard when you can just play led zeppelin over and over and over and over and And, you know people want to listen to it and I'm looking at that and I was looking at some of the acts that were being packaged by the labels at that point as AOR was becoming a big thing. And I'm thinking and this is when minimum wage was like $1.65 an hour. And I'm going, why do I want to move to Peoria to have somebody else tell me to play these crappy records by artists I won't name that I don't want to play? So I took a job in a record store. Unfortunately or fortunately that ended up turning into well I'm getting you know I'm getting closer to 30 I want to make a living and I just turned into a normal retail job especially because to get a job running a retail record store in the early 80s mid 80s you then had to become an audiophile because they were all selling audio equipment so I ended up being an audio salesman and ended up running Electronics departments for Macy's running the consumer electronics store for this company called J&R Music World, which had a huge amount of real estate in lower Manhattan. And I woke up every morning and looked at the clock when when the alarm went off at five of six. And all I was thinking about is when I would walk back in my front door at eight thirty. it had nothing. I was not looking forward to the work. I hated the work. I loved my wife. I loved when I got home and I needed to make money to pay our bills. And that yeah. was all I was doing. Yeah. Fortunately, I was commuting to New York from Philadelphia and was volunteering at WXPN when they were like the first non-com that was really moving away from 10 in a row. You don't know to a coherent creative very wide-ranging music mix, but trying to attract listeners and do radio professionally. And they had professionals in the building. And the program director at the time had been someone who had been trained in college radio by everyone I left behind when I graduated from my college station. And I just sent her a letter and said, hey, I'm more comfortable with you people than I am with the people on this side of the glass. And she gave me a shot and that was in 1995. I started to do weekend overnights at XPN and then a couple jobs later ended up uh, in a central position working with labels and radio at FMQB. And when they closed in 2019, took all those assets into the company that I had already formed that was doing some management and merch management and marketing consulting and all that for artists and, that's where we are today. Very good. Well, what was that college station you were at then? Isn't it, it was still a, around? It was the one at Temple University nobody's ever heard of because it was at their suburban campus and it was a carrier current, 10 watt carrier current AM station at 640 AM in a little trailer three room trailers front room was the office middle room was the production studio air studio was the back room um where our way of opening the windows and getting air because the air conditioner didn't work was pulling the slats off the trailer the windows in the trailer door and it was called wrft radio free temple (laughs) very very early 70s (laughs) awesome
0: that's great well i know you know my college radio years were very formative at, at mizzou and you know, we, even after I graduated, some of my, my cohorts, we, we kind of look back and monitor the situation and try and take care in some ways of like the legacy of it. And it had such a legacy as we came in, in the early nineties. And, you know, eventually it got taken over by like the student council. And then that was a bummer. And then the university pretty much put it on autopilot. And it was just so kind of depressing to watch the, watch it go away over the years from what it was. You know, when I was there, a couple of guys that, I vaguely knew they weren't good friends or anything, but they, they were the ones who cold called Alex Chilton and just said, Hey, you want to get big star back together? And he said, yes. And so they ended up doing the reunion concert at Mizzou in 94 or whatever it was. And they made a live album out of it. And it was just to see that you could make that kind of impact, you know, on that sort of level, I think made a a huge impression on me and, as I was graduating, they were starting KBXR there with with Kiefer, who I'd grown up listening to in Illinois, and it just kind of worked out. The stars aligned to get me into radio, and I'd already had the bug working in high school a little bit part-time uh, in news and top 40, so it, it's just so cool to kind of get everybody's different journey to to how they even got into to radio in the first place, but it still seems there's that connection between radio play and retail success, you know, whatever the overall national narrative is about radio there's always these think pieces as you well know of of radio's demise every year or two that uh what did you see at your time at the record store where people would come in after hearing stuff on the radio and how have you seen that kind of develop into this digital age
1: when I was in retail records, I was working for Peaches Records and Tapes. They would take these massive ten to 15,000 square foot supermarkets and turn them into the, the goal when they opened was to carry every record in print which you could do in the seventies before the first crater of the record industry, which came, you know, shortly after the, the disco surge because that's when things started to get very narrow again, but we saw it, but we also saw like, we would get pressure from because each store did its own buying. We would get pressure from rate label salespeople and the promotion people who were working with our national promotion people to develop promotions for the store to over-report certain, certain records. Um, we were a pilot store because they wanted to get this chrysalis in a very early incarnation that doesn't resemble what that label is now. Had this artist they'd signed that they wanted that they believed in. They felt they could get airplay on, and they just they were hitting walls at radio everywhere. So everything was regional then. So they picked a few markets, and Philadelphia was one of them where they came into the store and they worked out with our promote our national promotion people that in these five or six markets, they would do this, buy it and try it because there was no such thing back then as refunds. refund. it was, if you bought something and it didn't skip and it wasn't warped, it was yours. Yeah. Best you could hope for is you would bring it in and we'd give you store credit, mm-hmm. but this was buy it and try it. If you don't like this record, there's a full refund. And they would mark it down really, really low. And you know, I think this record's then we're going for like $4.99. So we'd be selling it for three ninety nine. dollars If you didn't like it, you could bring it back for a full refund. And we'd do all these end caps. And we did this on this record. And we sold in the first week tons of them because people were just – it was up by the register. They, they'd come in. They'd buy their vinyl and they would – because everything was vinyl then unless you were buying eight tracks – Yes, a tracks or cassettes. And I was an a track buyer at the beginning of my music career. And, you know, and it was just, okay, what, what the hell? Four bucks, you know, if I don't like it, I'll bring it back. We also got a lot of them back. But based on the sales, they ended up getting added at WMMR in Philadelphia and WISP in Philadelphia, which were the two big AORs. And this happened in a few other markets. So it started to look like a regional hit. And other radio stations started to add this record. So I think our net sales were probably in the tens, but based on our gross sales, Pat Benatar ended up having a career. <laughs> wow. But it really worked, you know. So it was like radio was looking at retail, and if there was something that was selling that they weren't playing, they would jump on it. <laughs> which you know a lot of labels now like you to do because they walk into a radio station and go we've got nine million streams why aren't you playing it because it's klezmer music and we don't play it, and that's not what our listeners like but it's got nine million streams and the same thing happened back then yeah. but then it worked in reverse once the airplay came then people started to come in to look for the record. Mm-hmm. And we resold all the ones that were returned when they didn't like it, probably to the same people who didn't like it. But now their favorite disc jockey was telling them that they did like it. So now they wanted it back. Yes,
0: that's awesome. And it's sort of that thing that I don't know if Prince was the first one to do it. I think he he made big headlines. What Was it 20 years ago when he tied musicology, I think, to the ticket so then more artists realized like wait a second we can do pretty well first week out if we tie the our new album in included as a freebie with the concert tickets
1: <laughs> yes yeah so and, and, the whole thing, and right? i think yeah and i mean you you saw a lot of labels in the aughts and and even now they're still there we don't talk about it as much because Um, I don't know if it's as prevalent as it was 10 years ago, but even if it's not, it's just part of the business where labels started to do what they called 360 deals with artists because previously it was like, isn't this great? We spent all this money to work this record when we sold a hundred thousand copies and we scaled our spend to a half a million copies, but look, isn't this great? Our artist has a touring career and we're not taking $1 from any one of those tickets or any one of those t-shirts or any one of those posters. So I think that that's a lot, you know, that when they saw that paradigm that you were just talking about was when labels started to go, no, now, if you want us to promote you to build your career, you have to cut us in on everything, not just the record sales. Yeah. Well, talk about the differences between
0: Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, too, because you were at WYEP in Pittsburgh for a few years there. Um, just in terms of the city and the, the differences in the station, but obviously both XBN and YEP are still going strong.
1: Well, first of all, I am very proud of those guys at YEP um, because when I went in there... Um, Rosemary Welsh, who still does afternoon drive there, was the program director and specifically told me when she hired me. Because again, this is the late 90s and noncom was just starting to turn to doing the kind of radio that you're hearing now, not just on XPN or FUV or FPK but you've got NRN down there in Charlottesville doing the same thing. You've got all over the country, you've got The Current, you've got KEXP where there are stations that are looking at their markets, making analytical as well as creative decisions of how they're gonna serve their audiences. And she told me when she hired me to be music director there coming from the uh, assistant music director, albeit with interim in front of the title at XPN, that she wanted to learn how to do what they did because they were very much at that point into we're not going to play anything anybody else plays. We're not going to play the hit off the album. And, you know, there's a reason that the other that you would be sharing some artists and songs with other stations. And that reason is that your potential audience likes them. There's a reason a hit is a hit Granted, if it's getting played every hour, we will get tired of it. But there, there were reasons for all this. And she wanted to bring some of that mentality into YEP, where they literally just had a wall of lights, mediums, currents. You need to play this many lights, this many mediums, this many currents. Pick whatever you want. Pick whatever song you want. So what we did in the couple of years I was there is we brought a little bit of order to that. The jocks were still picking their music we scheduled the currents, we added songs instead of albums. So in a perfect example, um, someone who has a record out today that honestly I think is his best record probably since um, around 2000, is most accessible. I don't know if it's his best, but it's most accessible. Um, Martin Sexton was, he had just been signed to Atlantic. They were playing his album. I forget, I forget the title of the first Atlantic album right now. Um, but they were playing it when I got there, but they were playing four or five songs from it. So he came in, did a show at the, the big AAA club in town, Rosebud, which was like 350, something like that capacity. And he played there on a Friday night on this record and had 125 people there to see the show. Mm-hmm. Shortly after that was when we started to do songs and started to make sure they got played in every day part throughout the week. And they got exposed and reinforced over a number of weeks. And the next time he came to town, it was a rainy Tuesday night and he oversold the room by about a (laughs) hundred. And, you know, I, I'm not going to say, Oh, that was all us. Right. But it was all our people there. We were the only ones in town playing them and somehow, you know, Three 350 more people than came to see him on a Friday night in January suddenly wanted to see him on a Tuesday night in October. So it had to be that. And when I say I'm proud of them is we started doing that during the time I was there. Um, Kyle Smith, who's the music director now he was the morning show host there is still the music director there rosemary's still on staff there and they you know we had no ratings when I started there they continued to develop from that place on that road where the you know I know one one month last year they were during the pandemic they had like a two four or a two five which for an oncom is pretty great yeah. in most markets. Yeah. And they just, you know, they they adapted, they changed, they did everything that they needed to do from that point to keep growing. And that's and the differences in the towns really back then I think were a lot more different because we were still a very regional society. The internet and Facebook and social media and TikTok had not brought us together to one consciousness from market to market the way it seems to now, which I don't necessarily think is a good thing, but that's just me and I'm old. And when you're old, you tend to go, oh, I remember the good old days. But I think there, there is a great value to having to discover things and not having, not having everything you wanna know, whether it's true or not, right there by going like that on your phone, just <laughs> pressing a button and your phone tells you everything that's going on across the globe. Right. Sometimes I think we have too much information. So things were very regional. But really, as far as markets, it's still just people are people. You find out what they like, you find out what moves them, and you connect with them emotionally. And honestly, I think that's one of the things that AAA Radio, whether it's commercial or non-commercial, is still very unique and very is very, maybe we weren't that unique 25 years ago. But we've maintained that is we're a collection of stations. We have almost no stations owned by big companies. The ones that are owned by major, by broadcast companies that are in, in multiple markets usually are small to medium markets. They're small companies. They're small clusters. And they're very community focused. They've got people who are making decisions on the ground. They don't have one guy in Chicago making decisions for all the AAAs. In the cluster. In yeah. fact, the only AAA we have in Chicago is, if I'm not mistaken, is the only AAA in their company. Yep. You know, um, iHeart has one AAA. Um, I think Cumulus is the big one. Oh, no. Odyssey has, they also have um, Madison. So they've got two or three, and they've left them to their own devices to serve yep. their markets. iHeart has one AAA. They have KBCO in Denver uh cumulus has two or three and again they usually leave them to their own devices because it's such a hard format to pigeonhole that as long as they keep making money these companies will leave them alone and then we have all the independent companies we even have like a major market indianapolis that's owned by a a local company that that just is about the market so what we're still doing in this format is we're still Connecting with our markets and people are people. If you connect with them where they live, you talk to them about things they care about, you pay attention to how they react to the music, even pay attention to what they ask for. Even, you know, keep in mind that it's a very small group that'll actually reach out to you and say, Hi, I want to be involved in making your decisions. I find people are really quick to tell you what they don't like, but they're not going to be really quick to tell you what they do like. (laughs) Um, Pittsburgh at that time was a little bit slower. The pace was a little bit slower. Obviously they were, it was still, it was before the tech boom there. It was just starting. So there was still a lot of the industrial feel and a lot of those attitudes, you know, it was like the beginning of the rust belt and it Back then, you know, you look like Pittsburgh was the beginning of the Midwest. It was not the end of the East Coast. A lot more blue collar workers. Um, At that time, a lot more people were trying to figure out their lives as factories and things like that were closing. And it's like, well, this is all I've done all my life. And I still have a lot more life ahead of me. But now these are going away. So it was a little challenging, but it was an exciting time in Pittsburgh because young people were starting to stay when they finished school. When I first got there, one of the things that we talk about with the local concert promoter, before it was a national concert promoter, and every market had its own local concert promoter, even in major markets, we would talk about how one of the problems they had is they would start to build audiences for younger acts with the college kids and all the college kids would leave immediately. But the Pittsburgh, at at that time, we were bringing a little bit more of the adult entertainment and a little bit more focus to more adult music that would have a little more longevity um, as the hippie generation was approaching their 40s and getting into their 40s. And the businesses that were opening in lieu of the Rust Belt type of businesses, the manufacturing and all that, were more tech oriented and things like that. So, younger people were finding a reason to stay in Pittsburgh and there was building going on, and people were, and it was really starting to get younger and the cultural scene was expanding. Whereas Philadelphia at that point was very rooted in what it had always been. Its next renaissance actually came about five or 10 years later. So it, those were the differences. Like Philadelphia was still that that mid-century, not industrial, but corporate kind of town that, that had st- already started to move away from the blue collar. Pittsburgh was just moving into that. And that affects people's tastes. It affects how they spend money, what they spend money on and all of those things impact our business. Yeah, for sure. We're talking
0: with Jack Barton for this week's edition of radio friendly unit shifters. And I think of, well, Liz Mazzacco, as you were talking about YEP, my old boss in Columbia, Missouri, she's now program director, just recently named of uh, YEP there in Pittsburgh. So. Very
1: well-deserved, and I was very excited to see that. Um, yeah, she yeah. did a great job at XR. She did a great job when she was at NKU, and then she was kind of like floating around for a couple years after... Uh, the ownership of NKU sold them to the uh, educational media foundation. And it was great to see her land there a year, a couple of years ago. And it was even greater to see her get to use her programming skills at that level again.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it is such a kind of small world within the AAA format around the country. As you mentioned, uh, some of the legendary stations that are still looked at as kind of beacons of the format with KBCO and, and XRT in Chicago, why has it been so hard over the years for AAA in the, the commercial realm in some ways to establish in like New York city, or we've seen, you know, the demise of, of K fog in San Francisco, which you would just think is a no brainer to have a, a AAA station of some kind in, in that area. But um, you know, the mountain in Seattle isn't quite the same Cities 97 isn't quite the same in Minneapolis, but it, at the same time, you've got this Renaissance, as you mentioned earlier, of the, the non-commercial space, And there's been some really interesting developments, I feel like,
1: uh, with that part of the AAA world. Because, Jeff, everybody has bosses. And when all those stations that you mentioned that have gone away, and the ones that are still here were formed, the ownership rules in radio were very different. You were only allowed to own, I think it was 6 AMs and 5 FMs in the whole country. So every broadcasting company was small. What you did in a market was more, you you were able, and there were also, let's also remember, there were a lot less choices. That was the only place to go for for auditory entertainment was the radio, the AM dial or the FM dial. Became FM through the 70s because the sound quality, you were able to broadcast in stereo, And just the way the signals processed, it was a cleaner, clearer, more powerful signal. So you would put on a station in a market in the progressive rock days of the late 60s, Metro Media, which I don't even know if they exist as a company doing anything anymore. After a while, they had morphed into a cell phone company, Mm -hmm. uh, a cell provider. But Metro Media had MMR in Philadelphia, NEW in New York, MMS in Cleveland, KSAN in San Francisco, KMET in LA, and I think there was one other. It might have been WMET in Chicago. But that was it. That's all they could have. So everything was based on local, and most of the sales that were done back then, there were national ads, but most of the sales in the 60s and the 70s were local when the Media Ownership Act was signed in 1996 and made it able for companies like j which eventually became part of the big company that became Clear Channel. And then, you know, actually Clear Channel was a company, but with small ownership at the time. As you were able to build these giant conglomerates, it takes money to buy all those radio stations. The money comes from investors. So now you're not dealing with local owners or radio people owning companies. You're dealing with hedge funds. You're dealing with investment bankers. You're dealing with investors. And Wall Street looks for quick returns. They do. AAA is not a cookie cutter format. You can look at the playlist. You mentioned the the two big commercial stations left in format, KBCO and Denver. WXRT in Chicago, you look at their playlists and you would be going, these stations are in the same format because there's only a handful of records that they share. Whereas to a corporate, you know, trying to turn dollars, explain to people, you know, you look at top 40, it's called top 40 for a reason. There's 40 records and everybody's playing those 40 records. You look at alternative, it might be 20 records, but those 20 records are getting played everywhere. So now you have to go to advertisers, not somebody who's in the market, who sees the passion that they put an ad on XRT, and then they see the passion of the XRT listener that comes into their store or their car dealership or whatever. You're going to agencies that are looking for ROI. It's just really that simple. How many listeners are you delivering me? In which quarter hours? How much is my spend? Is the return on investment what I need it to be? Mm -hmm. That's very hard to do in AAA. When people were trying to do a proliferation of AAA, I would regularly get program directors coming to me as the trade guide, can you write a succinct description of AAA radio that we can hand to our sales department to explain to their agency buyers? And it would be, it is a group of radio stations bonded not by demographic, but by psychographic (laughs) that are not necessarily all playing the same music but are share, but are playing music for people who share a perspective on the world and they fit into this demographic, but it's not, that's not the driver. It's the psychographic that brings them to the radio station. Okay. Um, give me 60 spots on your top 40. Give me 40 spots on your alternative and I don't get this triple A thing. Yep. And that's why. Whereas with non-com radio, it's not even about your, your listenership. You can pull a 0.7 in a market or actually you really can't because then there's not enough listeners, no matter how passionate they are, but you can pull a one five in a market. And if those are passionate, upper educated, upper income people who are willing to reach into their pocket to make sure that this diverse kind of programming is available to them when they, get in their car every day or turn on their radio, and they haven't been brainwashed by mainstream media and the internet that, oh, all you need is Spotify, that they still like that connection with a DJ who they think knows something about who they are just because they're local. And so there might be something they can connect with the artists and the music more deeply because of that human connection. Yeah. Reach into their pocket and they'll give twenty dollars a month, forty dollars a month, or even just five or ten dollars a month. And what drives those stations isn't their big buys. They need the corporate sponsorships. They need the, you know, and especially in the bigger markets, the agency buys of underwriting. But 60% is the benchmark of their revenue comes directly from their listeners paying for it. And I'll give you an example in your home market. I come down there every year. You've got a non-com in your market, WNRN. They do a Grateful Dead show, which actually the last hour isn't all Grateful Dead. It's three hours Saturday morning, two hours of Grateful Dead, one hour of jam bands with some Grateful Dead sprinkled in. And every year they do a 24-hour fun drive just for that show. There's no station drive going on at the time. It goes from 6 p.m. on a Friday night until 6 p.m., on Saturday night. And for the last few years, because I am a massive deadhead, as you may be able to tell by Jerry Garcia. Oh, you don't, this is not on video. If you, this was on video, you would see the one grateful dead poster under the Moby platinum record with Jerry Garcia's head popping up out of the top of my head from a photo that's on the wall behind me because I'm a massive deadhead and a radio professional. And they're using guys who started as volunteer hosts, Hosting the show, they've started to bring me down as to sort of be the fox in the hen house. You know, as one of the hosts of the show said to me this year, I get it now. You're one of us, so we'll trust you, but you're one of them, so you'll keep us from going off the rails. Um, in 24 hours this year, we were able to, just by playing Grateful Dead music for 24 hours and reminding people that it's only possible because they pay for it to happen raised $42,000 in 24 hours in Charlottesville, Virginia. Nothing against Charlottesville, great town. I actually love the time I spend there. Lots of great restaurants, lots of venues for shows, just like, you know, I'll be the travel agent, but it's Charlottesville and it's tiny. $42,000 for a Grateful Dead show in 24 hours. That's why non are proliferating. With music discovery, while commercial radio is having a difficult time, because the guy going, "Well, I'm buying the cluster. Why would I want to include the AAA?" Just doesn't understand the format. Well, and I want to
0: talk to you too about your uh, your deadhead uh, fandom and and some other things like uh, you know localism and and uh, maybe some new music you're listening to. I know uh, Martin Sexton is your feature artist of the week, right? It uh, yeah website.
1: Um, as Martin and I developed, you know, and I have to admit that that was one of the times when I, you know, when I do this because I can. Um, I think this record, it's a five, four or five song EP. It's not a full album. But when I listened to it, I thought for the first time in a long time, this would be easy to put on the radio. Because I still think like a programmer. I can't help myself. Yeah. Um, what I do for a living, is, I'm very grateful for. I love to be around radio. I love to be around music and music that I care about and that I love and radio that I care about and love. But my first love always has been and always will be being a disc jockey. By being a disc jockey professionally and becoming a music director, I learned some of the things that we need to consider other than just, oh, I like this track. When we put music on the radio for a diverse audience that might not all share our exact vision of what's good and what's not, you know, that's all very subjective. And this is the first Martin Sexton record I put on in a long time where I just like went through the first three tracks and went, I could play all three of these. Like I wouldn't even have to fight this through a music meeting. It just works. And the other thing is when we were champions of Martin early in his career, when he was on a major label in Pittsburgh, he and I became friends. We I think the last time we talked was or so, we ran into each other like six years ago. But every time we see each other, it's like old best friends. And I'm just like, I want to help this guy. Um, so yeah, I'm digging the Martin Sexton record.
0: We'll take a short break. We'll be right back with our second segment here with Jack Barton of Jack Barton Entertainment on radio friendly unit shifters. We're back here with Jack Barton of Jack Barton Entertainment and some great insights on radio and just the, the music industry in general. We are talking about Martin Sexton being this week's Artist of the Week. Folks can go to your website, right? It's not like a subscription or anything. People can see like your previous Artist of the Week. You've got a great list there of just... Yep,
1: jackmartinentertainment.com. You can learn more about my business than any normal person needs to know that's not in the music (laughs) industry. But if you click on the link for AAA, then it'll show you like what we do there and you'll be able to read the Artist of the Week. You can go back and look at the last year and a half's worth of Artists of the Week um, as well as all sorts of industry news that's really only i think interesting to those of us who are in the industry <laughs> <laughs> well, specifically the AAA format
0: yeah yeah well you've done you know charts and format news and you put together a great uh, conference a, a summit every summer for many years now uh, for uh, AAA radio uh, but you as you mentioned you've gotten into management and consulting how has kind of your retail background helped with that and was it sort of your your uh deadhead fandom that got you into that end of the business
1: well well yeah yes and no um i started when i went to fmqb i like to learn i want to learn something new every day and the exciting part about not getting into the this as a business Until I was 39 or 40. There's a lot of things you knew about radio and how to program radio and why you do those things and why you may challenge those, but all all of the methodology I got to learn in my late 30s, early 40s. And then when I left YEP, I got the opportunity to come back to where I had grown up, where my wife grew up, Philadelphia area, because that's where Friday Morning Quarterback was based. And they offered me the AAA job. And the fascinating thing to me was I started to then learn the record side, not from just being the guy sitting in the chair that takes music calls where the label goes, you have to play our record. And this is why you need to play it. but. I started to get to be involved in some of the conversations before they started to make those calls to radio. So how they picked singles, how they signed artists, what pieces went into the puzzle, which fascinated me. And I had dabbled before I got into radio, before I did this as a living, just to keep myself interested in life, I had dabbled in managing some local bands. I had no idea what it meant. I was like doing their books and, you know, and making sure, you know, it, it was more like road management than management, but I was doing that. And I had a friend who'd had a record out on Columbia in 1995 as I was just getting my job, first job at XPN. His name was Ben Arnold, who had, for a couple of years, he, you know, had been without a label, um, had been sort of kind of managing himself. The guys who had been managing him during the Columbia years would help out when he needed it. And he kept saying to me when I was at YEP, why don't you manage me? Why don't you manage me? And at the end of my first year at FMQB as I'm now learning like what this actually means, you know, He sent me a new recording he had done that was, and I still think to this day, the best record he ever made. And I was like, okay, I think I can get you on a label. It might be, you might get signed. It might be a licensing deal where they'll pay the expenses to put it out, but you still own the record. But I think I can make this happen. Now I'll manage you. And, you know, beginner's luck We got a deal with Psy Fidelity. It took almost a year, but we got a deal. We got the record out. And then for whatever reasons, and I tell this to every artist who ever comes to me about management or consulting is the thing you have to understand about this business is you can do everything right and you can have the perfect plan and you can still not connect because you're talking about people's emotions. You know, I go back, I actually just heard the song that the president of the label who's now a manager at Red Light, has a lot of big acts. But he so wanted one song to be the single, and I so thought it should be the other one. And we went with mine, and I'm in the car the other day, and the one he wanted came on, and I just went, okay. He was right, I was wrong. Jeez, I wish I had, like, listened to him. Maybe things would have been different, but they also might not have. But you know, we got some airplay, we sold some records, Ben did some touring, it didn't really happen, but that started to open up that I understood what management was. Yeah. Where the stuff that I'm most deeply involved with right now came about in management, did come through the Deadhead world. Being a Deadhead, it turns out that one of my two best friends in the world turned out became Dennis McNally, who was the Dead's publicist since the 80s until, in the mid, really until um, just after they reformed in the mid aughts. Um, but he was still Bob Weir's publicist at that point, And he had wrote honestly the definitive book about the Grateful Dead, which is called uh, Long Strange Trip, and came out in 2002. And during that, he Donna Godshaw hadn't been in the band when he worked for them, but he met her interviewing her for the band and they became friends. And he was doing some work with me with a jam grass band I was managing. And he called me one day and he's just like, oh, I was just on the phone with my friend Donna and da-da-da-da. And they've, you know, she's got this great band and she's hooked up with the Zen Tricksters from New York and they have all this original material and they have an investor and they can want to make a record and put it out, but their manager just vanished and they don't know what to do. Do you have any ideas?" Which later he admitted to me was him trying to Tom Sawyer me into going, well, is this us? Why don't we manage them? And it worked. <laughs> Through that, I met Jeff Matson, who was the guitar player in the Zen Tricksters. And he had an opportunity in 2009 when John Kadlasek, who was one of the founders of Dark Star Orchestra. Um, got plucked by Bob Weir and Phil Lesh to play in the band further that they were putting together at the time to join Dark Star Orchestra. And Jeff asked me to help him get that deal done. And then much to my surprise, refused to fire me when he was now in a band touring 120 nights a year that left him no time to do anything else. So he didn't really need a manager, but he kept me. And we're still, we're in actually our 15th year. Wow. Working together. Um, and so I was hanging around there for a year. And at the end of that year, the manager of Darkstar, who I, you know, I would eat, call to talk to me. And, you know, just out of respect that I managed one of the players in the band. And I guess he found some value in our conversations. He asked me to take over their merchandise management, which goes back to your, your question about the retail. First of all, any business experience you have coming into the record business and the music business and the radio business, especially when I did, which was at the tail end of the Wild West days, when there weren't, you, you couldn't go to school to get a music industry degree. When, you know, People would ask me when I was in college, oh, so what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I want to work in the music business. They'd pat me on the head and go, oh, you haven't decided yet you'll find your way. Still waiting for that. Um, (laughs) But it's working out okay. Um, So, you know, the one thing, and I forget who said it first, it was repeated to me the time I first heard it by Paul Marslick, who now does uh, some consulting work, but over the years, he was the PD at K Fog. He, for a few years, he you know, had some was a vice president of programming at VH1 when it was still really a music channel. Um, and he said, you know, records and radio—the only industry in the world run by the C students—which was pretty accurate. Because I mean, well, I'll admit it. When I was in college, I was in college so I could play at the radio station. I didn't care about class. <laughs> But it was the only place I could go to work at a radio station just because I was there. I didn't have to like get somebody to hire me. Um, And it was true. So any business experience you can bring into this industry sets you up to succeed because you understand, at least when I came in in the 90s, you understand things a lot of people in our business didn't understand then and a lot still don't. Um, The retail specifically, I took over the merchandise operation. It was just, a. it's, it's like a traveling kiosk. It's like, you know, it's like a push cart. You know, it goes from town to town. You put up your display, you, you, you know, you you're in a little mall that, you know, your customers are interested in your goods because they're at your show. Mm-hmm. And so you just apply retail you know, as far as assortment display, inventory control, all those things. And you take it to what was a tiny little operation and you turn it into 16% of the band's volume every year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's,
0: it's fascinating, man. So many different aspects. Uh, beyond the, you know, the recordings and the the records and getting them on the radio. I mean, so many interesting facets to the, to the business. And, you know, I've, I've actually been approached by at least one local artist in terms of the management. And I've thought about it in the back of my mind over the years for a few different acts in this area. I I don't even know where to begin because my business acumen is basically zero. So uh, I was very intrigued to to talk to you about that, but I, I have seen local music, it seems even on some of these non-coms who maybe didn't used to play as as much local stuff or maybe I just didn't notice it as much and I'm noticing it more now um, based on our great scene here. But, you know, I listened to KUTX down in Austin and and they're playing, you know, multiple local artists every hour now. And, you know, the current has always been very representative of the Minneapolis scene and a station like TMD up in Baltimore. They seem to really represent their area. Have you kind of seen that overall in in terms of the format and especially well, the
1: Yeah, um, when I was at XPN, I was the local music guy. So YEP was very local music focused when they hired me and they were very excited. Oh, the local music guy. And I walked in and and there was a thing going on and I I didn't make it up. I didn't pull it out of the thin air. I talked to other programmers and there was a point at the time of, you know, we're trying to be bigger, particularly on the non-com side than what we've been before. And I mean, do we, do do our listeners that we're trying to attract now, would they really rather hear some local band that's playing in a dive with sticky floors instead of the next, you know, a a deep track from REM. Right. And I made what I think was a huge mistake in music policy at YEP. And we started to scale back. We started to not care as much about the local scene. Um, That was a mistake. It, was kind of prevalent at the time, but what we learned as satellite radio came along, Napster, then Apple Music, then Spotify, then all these digital platforms, then all of these, the social media where things were being shared, is that one of the ways you can connect with your community and identify with your community is by doing exactly what you're talking about. And it's actually brilliant. The, the challenge is finding the balance. And I think that's different for every market. I think in a market like Austin, you could almost do an Austin Music Station and not play anybody who isn't from Austin. Right. <laughs> um, in Charlottesville, I don't know if you could do that. Um, there is a great value to the local artists, to the local scene, to hear that local artist play against a national artist. So, yeah, I have seen that. I actually think it's a really good thing. I, I think you always need, you know, it, it's, I, I try to explain to people who are like, understand, I don't understand why radio plays this, this, and this, but they won't play that, that, and that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, it's real estate. There's a finite amount of hours in the day. Yeah. for a radio station. It's not like a streaming platform. It, it's not like where you can make up all your own playlists. They, they're they curating, and they they can only fit in what they can fit in. So it really becomes looking at the local music not completely in a vacuum. You know, I made the case at YEP when I was there that it has to hold up to the best of the best of the national. Well, no, it doesn't. Because it first of all they don't have those resources, and that's where some of the best of the best come from. If they're not being manufactured by a label that has an artist development system, mm-hmm. that's what that's what's going to bring us our next Jason Isbell in the 400 Unit, who you know came out of Drive By Truckers, who were the next whatever. There was a lot of value, but we was talking before about in the 60s and 70s, where there were regional hits that would then get picked up nationally. And that's your opportunity to do that. And here's the best news. Because of the internet, because almost every radio station in the country can be listened to on your phone or your computer or any device, you're also putting that local music, you're giving them a shot with audiences and markets that you weren't giving them a shot on when it was all just the terrestrial signal. Yeah. So it is, it's a really good thing and in a world that's becoming more and more hit driven, you, you see some of what major labels put out and I complete, it makes perfect sense. There's nothing wrong with it, but they'll sign an artist and that artist won't put out, won't put out in a, a release for five or six years. They'll be working with the artists to develop their songs. They'll put them with other writers. and all the meantime, the artists will be releasing stuff on their Spotify page. Yeah, And then suddenly, oh, well, now they're up to a half a million streams. So now it's time to take them out into the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And a lot of independent artists, a lot of the artists that are played on as the local music on some of our AAA stations, both non-com and commercial, don't have that benefit of those budgets to help them build that. So you're giving them a leg up where you're not helping them develop their sound for Spotify, but you're giving them another place other than Spotify that somebody 3,000 miles away can find them and suddenly go, hey, and then start turning their friends on to them. Yeah, yeah. So it really gives a chance for music to proliferate in some more organic ways than the way we put it out as an industry.
0: Yeah, and I think, I don't know who said it first, or you know, I'm not claiming that it's an original thought, but it it just seems the more I think about it, like radio was the original social media. (laughs)
1: Like that was the... Well, it was. You know, last year when we did our first virtual summit fest, um, which took the place of the convention for... 2021 and 20 or 2020 and 2021 it will be back in 2022 and that announcement will come sometime in in august but when we did that we did an interview with jackson brown and after we were done the zoom we pre-recorded it we were just talking and we were talking about how hard it is for new artists and i don't think this is an original thought But jackson did he was like you know i hadn't thought of it like that but you're right. In the sixties, when I started listening to progressive rock radio, when the seminal stations, and triple A really is the direct descendant of progressive rock, yeah. um, when the seminal stations like K in San Francisco, KMET, NEW in New York, MMR in Philadelphia, when those came on, it was the late 60s, and young people, particularly young people with long hair, really were of group thought. It wasn't like now where you can go to a Grateful Dead show and you can have a Bernie Sanders Democrat standing next to a Donald Trump Republican, standing next to a Libertarian, standing next to a moderate democrat where just everybody we all had it was one group think we were against the war we were pro pot we were you know all these things that were very radical back then but it was a group think so when you put on that progressive rock station that played all kinds of music even more diverse than triple than the most diverse triple a's are now and we can get pretty diverse (laughs) you were talking with people and sharing with people who thought just like you. And that's really, unfortunately what social media has become, where if you look at your Facebook feed, you're only getting articles that are going to tell you what you want to hear.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: Those you're algorithms. only getting comments <laughs> that are going to tell you what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. I like to think, and I might be wrong because 20 or hindsight is always, You know, colored by your prejudices, I think. But I like to think that we were a little more open and we were more interested in listening to other people's ideas. But yes, radio really was, in my opinion, the first and possibly the most positive form of social media that ever was.
0: Yeah, well, I know I've already taken up too much of your time, Jack, man. This has been awesome, though, the the insights and uh, behind-the-scenes stories. Before we go, though, I want to ask you a couple quick things. What was your first Grateful Dead show and the best Grateful Dead show you've seen?
1: First Grateful Dead show was in September 1973 at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. I was not ready. I did not get what they do. I spent most of the first set wondering if those five guys, because there were only five of them at the time, if any one of them was ever gonna be playing the same song as the other (laughs) guy, ever. Like It just sounded like cacophony to me, but it was long before I understood jazz, long before I understood improvisation, and I've listened back to that show since, and I'm like, oh my God, what was I thinking? Um, It was a great show, and there was just so much musical conversation going on that my feeble little 17-year-old brain didn't know how to comprehend it. Best Grateful Dead show is very subjective because it's, well, you go by the set list. You go by how you felt that night. Right, you right. go by how it felt and it listened when you listened back to the tape 10 years later. So I'm going to go with some easy ones, the most significant Grateful Dead shows. The first most significant one would be when Led Zeppelin had to cancel their 1977 tour because Robert Plant's kid suddenly got a rare infection and died. And I had to trade in my tickets and there was a show posted at Ticket Tron. Yep. There was no Ticketmaster yet. It was Ticket Tron. Yep. And I, if I wanted to get Mac my big 35 cent service charge on each the two tickets I had for me and my girlfriend at the time who is now my wife of almost 42 years. this was in 1977. We'd been dating for two years. We had to go to another show and there was this big show posted at English Town Raceway, Grateful Dead, Marshall Tucker Band, New Riders of the Purple Sage. Well, we both hated the Grateful Dead, but we like Marshall Tucker and we like new riders. Worst that happens is we leave after the Grateful Dead starts. You know. And that was the night that we both got struck by the 13 point lightning bolt, which for those of you who are uninitiated, the, one of the most famous Grateful Dead um, logos is the red, white and blue skull with a lightning bolt going through its yep cranium and it's a 13 point lightning bolt you can get sued if you use a 13 point lightning bolt in any music related marketing 12 points are fine 14 points are fine just not 13 but we got hit by that lightning bolt and we're walking back to the car from that show and i'm worried about Oh, God, because we did everything together. I mean, we did not go to a show without each other. Like, how do I go see them next time? Because she hates them. And she takes my hand and goes, can we go see them next time we come to the spectrum? Yes. In fact, we saw them the next time they came to very many different halls between then and when Jerry Garcia died, like 314 more times after that. And one of those nights was on Halloween in 1979 when we had been living together and we had been talking about getting married and we suddenly had tickets for the show on Long Island. We lived in Philadelphia on Halloween and she was figuring out how she was going to get off work early to go and had a great idea. Why don't we get married at Justice of the Peace in the morning and then go to the show that night? So that would probably be my other favorite show. It was my wedding night. And lo and behold, in the cosmic world of cosmic Grateful Dead stories, Latter-day Grateful Dead, after their hiatus in 1974, they only opened three shows ever with China Cat, Sunflower, I Know You, Rider," which we had joked for years, couldn't have been too many years, We'd only been together for four years. We well, know if we're ever going to have a big wedding, we you know we'll only do it if we can have the Grateful Dead play there. And if we're going to hire them to play our wedding, they have to open with China Cat Rider. God damn if two of the three nights that they opened with it weren't our wedding night, and five nights later, when all of our friends in Philadelphia took us to the show to celebrate our wedding. <laughs> so,
0: cosmic man, I'm telling you, that is awesome.
1: It is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, NBA draft is tonight, so I'd be remiss. I know you're a big basketball uh, guy. So what are you looking for in the NBA draft? We're expecting at least one UVA guy, maybe a couple, to be uh, drafted this evening.
1: You know what? All I'm looking for is for the Sixers to friggin' trade Ben Simmons after he disappeared in the playoffs. I sub- I supported him from the day we drafted him through his two made threes that he never took another three the rest of his career, but the way he disappeared in the second round of the playoffs oh, this year, man. it's time to part ways. I hope he has great success wherever we trade him to. I just hope that, Daryl Morey can get that deal done and the sooner the better. <laughs> it
0: looks like it's in that direction. Yeah, it was that was hard to watch. So I I root for the Sixers, you know, over the years I was a big Dr. J fan. I always rooted for them against the the Celtics and LA dynasties. So uh always had a soft spot in my heart. Plus they still got Mike Scott, so you know, they're hanging on to at least one Cavalier. So <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Jack, I'll, I'll let you go, man. This has been so cool. And uh, we really appreciate the time here on Radio Friendly Unit Shifters and all the best with uh, Jack Barton Entertainment.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Jeff.